The portion of God's Word that we'll focus our attention on for a few minutes this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through the arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So at the beginning of the service, I mentioned that, that big word, anthropomorphism. That's what I was going to talk to the kids about today. Anthropomorphism is when we take a human attribute and we apply it to something that's not human. The intention is not to say that the thing we're refuing, referring to has that physical feature, that, that human characteristic but rather it's to help humans understand what's being described better. And so with that in mind, I do have a question for you. The, 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 the finger of God here, Jesus is using clearly to show that he's driving out demons by the power of God. So the question is, when you think of a human finger, does power or strength come to mind? Maybe not. Maybe not. Fingers are important, Right? Think about all the things that you use your fingers for and then you try to imagine what life would be like without your fingers. Perhaps you know someone, I know someone who's lost some fingers. It makes life more difficult. The way we eat, we use our hands, we use our fingers, right? You don't have your fingers, eating, drinking would become a whole lot more difficult. Writing with a pencil, using a computer, a lot of the things that you do every day, you take for granted. Your fingers are kind of important. So importance, maybe we could see that for a finger. 
but strength. When you watch the, the strongman competitions, the, the biggest people, strongest people in the world lifting heavy weights, are they having finger strength competitions? No, they're, they're not. They, they use an arm, right? Perhaps the, the whole body working together to pick up something heavy, but maybe not just a finger. And so what I wanted to, to spend just a few minutes doing today is reviewing two other places in Scripture where the finger of God is used to describe God and to show power. So the first one is in the book of Exodus when God is sending plagues on the nation of Egypt so that Pharaoh will let his people go. Two plagues have happened. The first one, God allows Moses and Aaron to, to turn the Nile River into blood. And then the second one, after the Nile River is turned back into water again, the second plague is frogs that come up out of the Nile River and just infest the land. So many frogs that there were frogs in the Egyptians' beds. Just frogs everywhere. But there's one detail in Exodus chapter 8 that we often miss, I think, in regard to those first two plagues. We're told that the magicians of Egypt, by their own magic arts, were able to replicate these two plagues. Now, not on the same scale, but they were able to turn a jar of, of water into blood, and, and they were able to command frogs to come out of the Nile, and they did. But it's when you get to the third plague, something changes. I want you to take a listen to this account from Exodus chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. What did they mean when they said, we can't do this, but the God of the Israelites has? They were saying, this is the power of God. This is the power of God at work. This is the finger of God. Another example, slightly different but similar. Towards the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 31, Moses is up on the Mount Sinai getting the law. Take a listen to what we're told. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of of God. Again, this one's pretty simple. God cut out of rock tablets for Moses and with his power, not with tools, a chisel and hammer, but with his power, he wrote on the stone. He carved out the letters. God's power over nature, God's power to do anything he wants, including cut out rock and inscribe on them. So even though it might not seem like the best picture of strength to us, when Jesus says, I drive out demons by the finger of God, he's referring to his power. So, so back to the text. When we combine the details of this text from Luke's gospel with the text of the same account from Matthew's gospel, we see some interesting things. First of all, in Matthew's gospel, we're told that not only was this man mute, 
Not only was he unable to speak, he was also unable to walk and unable to, to see and unable to hear. So he's, he's unable to do just about anything, right? He can't see, he can't hear, he can't speak. And here, the, this great miracle happens. It's the first thing. And, and there's so much teaching after it that maybe we missed what happens first. It's the actual miracle. The man can't see, he can't hear, he can't speak. Jesus drives out the demon, and all of a sudden the man can see, hear, and speak. It's an incredible miracle. The crowds are amazed. And we're told about two reactions here. Matthew gives us a third. I'll start with Matthew's because it's not here. There's a group of people who see this incredible miracle happen, and they say, could he be the son of David? So what are they wondering? They see Jesus perform this miracle and they have this God-pleasing response. They say, is it possible that he's the descendant of David, the son of David, promised, the Messiah? Could he be the one? But there's two other ways that people in the crowd respond. Some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. As if the miracle that Jesus just did wasn't enough, we want another miracle to prove the miracle. Let's focus on that second response for a minute. The accusation that he is using the power of Satan to drive out Satan. Jesus' response is, is interesting because he uses logic, reason, to show how absurd this is. This suggestion that, that it's actually Satan trying to drive out Satan. In verse 17, Jesus says, Any kingdom divided against itself will, will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. I want you to think about the cost of war. If a nation sends an army of a million, how much does that cost? How much does it cost to transport the million where they need to go? How much does it cost to feed the million? To keep the million clothed and dry and warm? How much does it cost to provide shelter for the million? If you start adding up the costs that it actually would take for an army to, to go fight a, a, a nation... You'd have to ask yourself, is it worth it? And if you find out that your enemy is intensely divided, that there is intense turmoil inside the nation, would you attack or would you wait? You'd wait. Let them destroy themselves from inside. And then when they're weak, then we'll attack. And instead of a million soldiers, we'll only need 250,000. And the costs will be cut by 75%. Jesus is saying, you don't see this. A house divided against itself will fall. A nation divided cannot stand. It makes no sense that I would be Satan driving out Satan. For what purpose? What would it accomplish? No. But if, by the finger of God, I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come 
to you. Think of what Jesus is saying by connecting, driving out demons by the finger of God and saying the kingdom of God is coming. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. What are we praying? What are we asking? Confirmation kids should, should remember, we, we went through this just a few weeks ago. What, what, what is it? When we say your kingdom come, we, we acknowledge God's kingdom certainly comes by itself, even without our asking, but we ask in this petition of the Lord's Prayer that his kingdom would come to us also as the Holy Spirit comes and works through God's word. As he sets up a kingdom in our hearts, as he creates faith in our hearts, as he works through his word, God's kingdom comes, his invisible kingdom of all believers in Jesus throughout the world and throughout all time who will live forever in, in heaven. What is happening? When, when Jesus drives out the demon, who's speaking? It's God speaking. And when God's word is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit goes to work. And what's Jesus' point? When I tell a demon to leave, it has to listen because the Holy Spirit of God commands it. And so the demon has no choice but to leave. This is the Holy Spirit working through the word of God. And Jesus calls it power. He goes on to use this little parable about a strong man defending his house. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safer. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying, all right, let's say Satan is the strong man. He has these possessions. His house is full of unbelievers. His house is full of people who are not in God's kingdom, and he defends them vigorously. He tries to keep his possessions with him. All those that he has torn away from God, he tries to keep in his house. But if someone stronger comes and ties up the strong man, he could take those possessions out of the strong man's house. Jesus is saying, I am the, the strong man, but which house are you in? And it took us a little while to get to this point, but this is the point. Listen to verse 23 again. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. This account is not really about the power behind Jesus' ability to drive out a demon. The people who look at this and say, could he be the Messiah? They're in God's kingdom. The other groups are in the devil's kingdom, in the devil's house. There is no in-between. There is no, pretty sure I'm in God's kingdom, but do another miracle just to prove it to me that you're actually the son of God. Or, I do everything right. I'm a teacher of the law. I know God's law. Well, you must be driving out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus' point is, you're either in my house or Satan's house, my kingdom 
or Satan's kingdom. And so what we want to wrestle with this morning is the question, which kingdom are you in? And there's another question we could ask that will help us answer that question. Is Jesus all you need? The events in our country are, are, are testing our answers to that question. Is Jesus all you need? If Jesus is all you need, you are in God's kingdom. If Jesus is not all you need, you are not. Think about that for a minute. Think of all the things that we're used to right now that are just taken away from us. I saw a hashtag on the internet today, March Sadness. That's pretty clever. This is a time of year when so many people look forward to watching athletes compete. This might sound silly, but when I was in college, I, I called into a national sports talk show. The Dan Patrick Show. I'll never forget this. They were asking, what's your favorite time of year in the sports season? And they were asking people to call in and make an argument for their favorite time of year. And I'm like, this is a no-brainer. I got a call. It's the spring. Because if you live in the north, the weather's getting nicer, and there's all these exciting things happening. College basketball, the NBA playoffs are about to start, the Masters, baseball's starting. There's all these fun things. If you like sports, even the NFL draft, if you like sports, this is a fun time of year. So I called in and made this argument. And now for people who like sports, it's all gone. For those of you who don't care about sports, a lot of other things have been taken away from you too. Kids, no school for a couple weeks. <laughs> we'll see how that goes in a week or so when you start doing school at home. We'll see how that goes. But all of a sudden, these things that we're used to, youth sports, youth gatherings, plays, all these activities, these things that, that we very easily, very easily could begin to find value in, worth in. This is why I exist, to go to piano practice or to go to play practice or to go to sports practice. This is my purpose in life, to run my kids around, to do all these things, to be a part of this organization or that organization, to go out and do the, just to live life as though nothing's ever going to change. To go to the store... Like, the store should be exactly the way I expect it to be. I go on this day at this time because I know it won't be busy, so it should not be busy, but it's crazy. Why? It, things have changed. Is Jesus all you need? Th this little ex experience we're having right now may not have changed every aspect of your life, and it may impact different people here in different ways, but it is forcing us to answer that question. Is Jesus really all you need? Or, or have you set up a whole bunch of other idols in your life that you cling to each and every day? It's convicting. It's convicting to realize how much I rely on other things. I, I take them for granted. I assume that these blessings from God will always be here. I like having them here. And then you take them away and I say, I miss that. I want that. Maybe even... 
I need that. The good news is, Jesus is all you need. Even when you and I temporarily forget it. Jesus is all you need. He's all you need to be forgiven for the times that you've set up idols in your life. For the times that you've needed other things, other people, other experiences, other places. I forgot to mention that one. How many of you had vacations canceled, cut short? All the times that you've set up idols in your life, Jesus is all you need for forgiveness for those sins. Jesus is all you need to be ripped out of the strong man's house, out of Satan's house and brought into his. Jesus is all you need. He proved it on the cross when he shed his perfectly prioritized sinless blood that never had an idol. When he poured that blood out for the sins of the world. He proved that when he rose from the dead, showing you and I that sin's greatest consequence, even death itself, the thing that so many fear today, when he showed that death itself had been defeated. Jesus is all you need. I may run the risk of making a bigger deal out of this finger of God thing than I need to, but I want to spend just a few more minutes talking about the finger of God. It does fascinate me that God chooses to use this here. There's other sections of Scripture where God talks about his mighty arm and outstretched hand. And maybe you could see power there. But why a finger? I think part of it is to help us understand just how much stronger Jesus is than the devil. Satan may be strong. He, he may be able to get you and I to trip now and then and set up an idol or two in our lives. There may have been times in our lives, horror of horrors, where we have been firmly planted in Satan's house. But Jesus doesn't need much to drive him out. He just points and he leaves. His finger is enough to tie up Satan He's that much more powerful. Your Jesus is all you need. He's all you need. He's all you need for forgiveness. He's all you need to defeat Satan and his minions. He's all you need for a great life here, even though that great will not be the way the world defines great. He's all you need for a life of peace, whether you're on vacation or not. He's all you need for happiness, whether you're where you want to be or, or not. He's all you need, whether you're doing what you want to be doing or not, watching what you want to be watching or, or not. Jesus is all you need. Amen.